Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, local school districts come under legal threat in California simply for keeping parents at the center of their kids' education. They picked the wrong ones to fight because we're going to fight back. Families across the nation are starting to pay attention. Parents are standing up. Communities are standing up. Grandparents, people who don't even have kids are standing up and saying enough is enough. Albert Moeller looks at an ominous piece of legislation also in California. It's hard, frankly, to imagine anything as draconian and extreme as this. And he looks at the intellectual origins of what we're seeing unfold so quickly. The ideology of the communists stated emphatically that children belong to the state, not to parents. I'm Scott Furrow. Great to be with you today. I'm host of the Pastor Scott Show, heard Monday through Friday throughout L.A. and San Diego areas in Southern California. I'm coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at KKLA.com and also through the KKLA app available for Apple and Android devices. Take a moment right now to follow the Christian Outlook on X, formerly known as Twitter, at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin in California and the issue of education. Parents across the state have been waking up to the fact that all too often there are some very serious things happening in the lives of their son or daughter, and they are the last ones to hear about it. As reporting on education-related issues has raised awareness, there are a number of school districts where parents have stepped up and asserted their leadership role, gaining seats on school boards. In a number of cases, they have gained a new governing majority where they have changed policy, making parental notification obligatory. A good case in point is Chino Valley Unified in the Golden State's Inland Empire. California Attorney General Rob Bonta has taken the school district to court. Sonia Shaw is the president of the school board there in Chino Valley. She was my guest on my program. Our kids are in danger. You know, there's a, a meme going around on social media. It had like this six years old, seven years old kid with, you know, tattoos all over him. And it says, you know, if he says he's ready for tattoos, he's ready for tattoos. Don't discriminate, okay. right? Uh, if he says yeah. he's ready to drink and drive and it shows his kid, he's got to be, you know, 12. Who are we to say that he uh, can't drink and drive? Don't discriminate. I think people yeah. are, are waking up to the absurdity of what's going on mm -hmm. with our kids, but our kids have been in danger actually for a while. They have. You're absolutely right. California has been 40th in the nation with their test scores. And as much as you don't want to just put it on there, I mean, that is testimony to what our kids have been learning in the classroom. And you have amazing teachers. You have amazing mm -hmm. staff members. I, I believe in my heart, you know, you have a lot of amazing people, but their hands are tied because you have your unions and your Department of Ed who have a different focus and they have a different agenda than educating your kids. And I think people need to start getting more involved. They need to start being more aware. Myself was included. I mean, I, I kind of trusted the system. I was a volunteer in the classroom for both of my kids for almost a decade before the shutdown shut parents out. 
And yeah. I think that's where a lot of parents became aware of a lot of things is during that time. Is that what caused you to run? How did you decide, you know what, I could, I discovered there's a school board and, and I need to be a part of that. So during the shutdown, a lot of things were happening and parents started talking on social media. Another parent said, we need to go to our school board and voice this. So we started going to our school board. We developed like a grassroots organization. I quickly became the voice and the president of our local advocate group. We realized our school board did not listen to parents. So, yeah, we we ran a campaign, and we had somebody who spent over $150,000 to run against us parents, but we, we showed them that the community wanted a voice at the table. We actually flipped our majority by two seats, so now we have four amazing voices. I mean, we have a great a great school board regardless Mm -hmm. but with the current issues you have four school board members that have completely submitted to listening to the parents and i think that's amazing that that shows people you have control of your local government right now sonia your school district because you went first uh, you're getting sued uh, by the state of california because Mm -hmm. you passed a resolution Uh, tell us about that resolution and why you're getting sued for it Absolutely. I know you say we're getting sued, but it also came with death threats and a bunch of name calling, but it also came with amazing amount of support, right? So we're not surprised by getting sued because we're actually challenging the state taking control from us. But here's what I do say, like they're suing us because they want to have control, right? Mm -hmm. But we're going to stand our ground and we're going to fight them. I mean, sue us or not, I'm not surprised. This notification policy was simply to say, hey, parents, We know the state wants to keep secrets from you on certain issues, but we're not going to. So we're going to notify you if um, your kid is bullied or if your kid is suicidal or if your kid is wanting to be another gender than what they were born as. If they want to go into another bathroom than, you know, the gender that they were born as. Um, If they want to play on the opposite sports team of the, you know, sex that they were born as. We're going to notify you. And that caused them to literally, like, raise up their, their stick and say, no way, you're not going to. They try to, you know, threaten us, do an investigation on us. They couldn't find anything. Right. This was their last straw here to keep it here locally, here in California. When I say locally, I mean California, because they can control us in California by passing these bills. But people should be aware. When this happened, they couldn't push a bill fast enough to stop us, right? Yeah. They knew that it has to go to next session, which is next year in the legislation session. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they try to intimidate and bully us right now and start the process. Yep. Now, if this was so dangerous as they're claiming, why is Chino the only one being sued right now when you have six districts now, as of last night, six districts that passed this? Let that sink in. What does that tell you? This is not about keeping your kids safe. This is about control and setting an example of Chino. But they picked the wrong ones to fight we're going to fight back. Yeah, good for you. Uh, How do we make sure that everybody realizes this is this is not partisan? This is about parents and kids. You know what? It's already happening by the actions of what I call the political cartel of Newsom, Bonta and Thurman, because here's what's happening. They want us to divide between red and blue, Christian, non-Christian, religious, non-religious. So they're doing that. They're doing Republican versus Democrat. But guess what parents are doing? We're saying no. This is not a political issue. You're making it a political issue by getting involved. This is a parent issue. This is a family issue. You're trying to break up the family unit. And what I've seen, and this is what I want, to, I want people to stay encouraged, is people are coming from all different walks, all different affiliations, all different religions or non-religions, all different party affiliations, and they're coming together regardless of them saying this is red or blue. 
and we're coming together and we're uniting because this is the kids, right? Yeah, that's this right. This is our children. And and you know what? We're talking about education. And I and this morning when I was talking to God, literally, this is the biggest lesson right now in current what what is happening in history, right? We're making history with showing our kids how people are coming together, right? Right. And this is the biggest lesson they'll learn. Because right now we're showing them, regardless of the abuse of government power, parents are standing up, communities are standing up, grandparents, people who don't even have kids are standing up and saying enough is enough. And I think that is the biggest lesson to show them they are valuable. We're going to stand against the tactics that they're throwing at us, and we're going to do the right thing. And we're also going to show them the Constitution gives them rights and stand true to the Constitution. Don't let them strip your rights away. And and I think that... Honestly, I think it's already happening. Parents in California and across the nation are wise to wake up to what is happening. In my home state here in California, the legislative agenda just seems to go from bad to worse. California's bill, AB 957, has passed both chambers of the state legislature, and Governor Gavin Newsom is expected to sign it. The legislation threatens the ability of parents to train up a child in the way he should go. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. Another way to understand this bill is that it is a direct assault upon parental rights in that state and offers every parent in the state of California the threat that if that parent is judged by some court to be inadequately supportive of a child or a teenager's gender identity, then that can be used by the court in order to separate the parent from the child in terms of parental rights. The legislation was introduced by Assemblymember Lori Wilson. The legislative summary says this, quote, existing law governs the determination of child custody and visitation in contested proceedings and requires the court for purposes of deciding custody to determine the best interests of the child based upon certain factors, including, among other things, the health, safety, and welfare of the child, end quote. Now, that's pretty boilerplate. That's pretty much what you'd expect in any one of the 50 states in the United States of America. That's the typical kind of language about what is at stake in a custody hearing. But then the summary of the bill gets to this, quote, this bill for purposes of this provision would include a parent's affirmation of the child's gender identity or gender expression as part of the health, safety, and welfare of the child, end quote. Now, before we go any further, let's just look at two terms used in that single Rather short sentence. Both of them are explosive. One of them is gender identity. The other is gender expression. Now, gender identity, you know this in terms of the ideologies of the transgender non-binary revolution. That has to do with the claim made by an individual that gender identity is separate from biological sex. And, and that's a rather emphatic statement with legal significance. But the second thing mentioned here is simply gender expression. And we need to understand that gender expression refers to something that might be as cosmetic as, uh, say, well, a boy wearing lipstick or choosing to wear a girl's clothes or vice versa. Gender expression is an enormous category, and all of it is filled with this ideology. All of it is subversive of ontology, which is to say creation order, God's intention. But what we see here is that it is being used as a direct assault on parental rights in the state of California. The Senate has already adopted similar legislation in California. This is now moving to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk, an extremely liberal governor who has made very clear support of this kind of legislation. And earlier in the term, the governor said that if this bill reached his desk, along with several others, he would sign it. 
So it appears, at least at this point, that this is going to become law in California, where we can only hope it is challenged by parents in court. I don't want to just depend upon news reports and summaries. I went right to the text of the bill as it was filed there in the assembly in California. It states this, quote, in making a determination of the best interest of the child in a proceeding described in section 3021, the court, now this means a, a court of law, the court shall, quote, among other factors, it finds relevant and consistent with section 3020, consider all of the following. 1A, the health, safety, and welfare of the child. Listen to B. Quote, as used in this paragraph, the health, safety, and welfare of the child includes, among other comprehensive factors, a parent's affirmation of the child's gender identity or gender expression. Affirmation includes a range of actions and will be unique for each child, but in every case must promote the child's overall health and well-being. Now, if those words do not explode in your hearing, they certainly should, because when you are looking at an assault upon the family, an assault upon parenthood, it's hard, frankly, to imagine anything as draconian and extreme as this. There are those who have referred to this bill as it was proposed as radical, and of course it is radical. The problem is that word isn't nearly strong enough to explain what's going on here. Coming up. To be honest, it's hard to imagine legislation more truly radical than this and more truly destructive of the family. We continue with analysis of California's AB 957 in the next segment of The Christian Outlook. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That moment when the sun peeks over the horizon, when the sea breeze kisses your cheeks, when the sun's rays warm your soul, when you're grateful to be right here, right now, that's the moment you know that the little things in life are the big things. Massachusetts, take a moment. Plan your getaway at visitma.com. Here in Manhattan, when how long you live depends on where you live, it's time to raise health. When your quality of care depends on who you are and health seems out of your hands, it's time to raise voices, raise expectations for better access, better outcomes, person by person, block by block. With a powerful system of care, that's for everyone. Northwell is here, Manhattan, and we came to raise health. Visit northwell.edu slash NYC. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, host of The Pastor Scott Show. As goes California, so goes the nation. It's an oft-used saying. Sometimes it feels like it's overused, but it is nonetheless true more often than it's not. And if this sort of legislation is not contagious, spreading to other states in the union, it's because people like you have woken up and started paying attention. Let's pick up with more from Albert Moeller talking about California's AB 957. This legislation puts as a criterion that could be used against parents the gender expression and gender identity ideology, but you need to note that it's put in the context of other actions that might separate 
apparent from parental rights, and that would include a history of abuse or of drug or alcohol abuse. So we're looking at putting opposition by a parent to a child's gender expression or claim of gender identity up with child abuse. Indeed, it's basically defined as a form of child abuse. Now, as Christians, we need to step back for a moment and recognize that the very issue of parental rights as a contested issue in a society is a sign of profound unhealth and a very toxic, if not fatal, confusion. We are, however, living in a time in which this isn't coming from a vacuum. We can look back at the 20th century, and I want to point to two developments in the 20th century that very ominously form the background here. One of them was the Bolshevik Revolution in what became the Soviet Union. The ideology of the communists stated emphatically that children belong to the state, not to parents. Parental rights were really only a matter of limited obligation in the ideology of the Soviet Union. The state was above all, and all children belonged effectively to the state. So parental rights could be terminated at any time, and children could be turned against parents, parents against children. And you'll recall, of course, there were famous cases in which one of the symbols of Soviet patriotism was a boy who had supposedly turned in his father to be executed for crimes against the Soviet Union. And then you also had something else happen, and that was not in the Soviet Union, but in the United States of America. And that was the rise in the progressivist wing of what might be considered a leftward drift in the United States, especially in the intellectual elites. You had people, and some of them were identified with the therapeutic community, some of them with the legal community, some of them just in terms of what became the administrative state, who were basically arguing that parents had only provisional rights when it came to their children, that the state had an obligation. And this is chillingly like what was in the Soviet Union. In the United States, it never said that children belong to the state. Instead, the claim was the state has an obligation to make certain that children have their own interest recognized by the state, even if that interest is at odds with the intention or supervision of their parents. And so that was a less radical claim. We need to make very clear, a far less radical claim than what emerged in the Soviet Union, where children were simply said to be basically the property of the state. But when it comes to the United States, the growth of the administrative state, the therapeutic regime, and even educational authorities in many cases, it basically came down to the assumption that parents are to be trusted until the state doesn't trust them anymore. Now, the logic of this legislation is to say one of the issues that could make the state lose trust in parents is if the parents take what's defined here as a non-affirming position when it comes to gender expression or gender identity claims made by children. And just recognize, whether it is the same claim or not, this basically ends up very much like the Soviet Union. To be honest, it's hard to imagine legislation more truly radical than this and more truly destructive of the family than this kind of legislation. And it is now moving to the governor's desk. There's no reason to believe the governor won't sign this. He basically has already said he would sign it. And this is not the only legislation of similar form he said he would sign if the legislation reaches his desk. State by state, this is becoming an issue, although California is certainly, let's just say, leading the way when it comes to pushing hard against parental rights in this case and pushing hard for the non-binary transgender ideology pretty comprehensively. But state by state, this is becoming an issue where you have those who might be state officials or government officials or school officials who claim they know what's best for children. And 
one of the issues that is coming up again and again is the fact that parents aren't even being told when children are, for instance, in the public school system, assuming some kind of alternative gender expression or gender identity, sometimes the parents are explicitly not told. And in some cases, the schools are told they must not tell the parents. This is a contested issue, as I say. In some states, legislation is passed where the parents must be told. The schools have the obligation to tell parents. But when it comes to a state like California, this issue is also very much in play and very much in just the last several days. Consider this headline in last Friday's edition of the New York Times. So this is just, say, three days ago. Here's the headline. District can't notify parents if their child is transgender. Notice again the word is can't. School districts can't notify parents if their child is transgender. Anna Betts reports for the Times, quote, a superior court judge on Wednesday temporarily blocked a Southern California school district from notifying parents if their child seeks to change pronouns or gender identity. So you notice it's not just the legislator, it's not just the governor who said he will sign the bill if it reaches his desk. It's also action in the courts. This is a superior court judge in California blocking the policy that was undertaken by the Chino Valley Unified School District in the state of California, a more conservative school district, as you might guess, than some others that had, quote, approved a policy in July that requires officials to notify parents if their child asks to use a name or pronoun that does not align with the child's birth certificate or seeks to use a bathroom assigned to a different gender, end quote. So folks, I hope you're paying attention to this. The biblical worldview would make very clear that when it comes to relationships, the relationships between parents and children are absolutely sacrosanct. And they're prior to other relationships. The only human relationship that is prior to the relationship of the parent and the child is the relationship of the parent and the parent. And this means, biblically defined, a man and a woman united in marriage. And this means the children produced by that marriage. And so the relationship of the husband and the wife, the mother and the father, is the only relationship that is legally prior to the relationship of the parent and the child. Now, here's where we also recognize that the state, and by that I mean the government, not just the state of California, but speaking in legal terms of the state or the government, whatever its level, frankly, wherever it's found, the government has the responsibility to respect both marriage and parenthood and to respect them actually, not coincidentally, together. Now, I think we should also posit that it is not only understandable that parents would want to be informed of such a development, their own child, their own son or daughter, trying to use a different name, suggesting the use of different pronouns, and for that matter, presenting as a gender expression or a gender identity different than biological sex, you would think that just about anyone would think it's sensical that parents would at least be informed that for Christians is not nearly enough. We would believe that parents have a responsibility here that goes beyond just being informed. We would think that the government would have the responsibility to, at the very least, inform parents. But now we are told that the district, according to this judge, not only doesn't have that responsibility, but can't do it. The school district is basically informed here that it cannot legally inform parents of such a situation. Now, we really are looking at a complete meltdown here. This isn't just a problem that has emerged in some kind of anecdotal development. This is a full assault upon parental rights, which is a full assault upon parenthood, which is a full assault upon the family, predicated on a full assault on marriage. And I meant every word of that in exactly that sequence. Coming up, more on education. 
Every passage of scripture in the Bible that talks about instruction and teaching and education of children is directed to parents. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. I can't believe BJ's Wholesale Club has all this great new stuff. Honey, this sofa is so stylish. Yeah, stylish. And this sweater is so on trend. Try it on. That's me, Mr. Trendy. And BJ's has the hottest brands at great prices, like Sir La Table and Nespresso. And Hot Wheels. <laughs> Look, it's Barbie. Hi, Ken. Let's go to the beach in my Corvette. Attention, BJ's members. The club is now closed. Just five more minutes. Please. Saving club or on BJ's.com. Not a member? Join today. BJ's. Absurdly simple savings. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Scott Furrow. With the issue of education in the news and on our minds today, many parents of younger children are trying to navigate the issue for their precious little ones. How can we balance our limited time and resources and still remain faithful in our efforts to train up our children and pass on the faith? Israel Wayne is director of Family Renewal and a champion for homeschooling. He was a guest of Georgine Rice on KPDQ in Portland. Does God have an opinion uh, with regard to how children are educated? Well, you know, there are a lot of passages of Scripture that I could point to, but to simplify it, let me just put it this way. Every passage of Scripture in the Bible that talks about instruction and teaching and education of children is directed to parents. There are only two exceptions to that, but there's not a single verse in the Bible where God ever commands or instructs the civil government to be involved in teaching and training and educating children. In fact, in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, we're given a description of what civil government, which is established by God, is supposed to do. It says they're supposed to bear the sword to punish the evildoer. So the role of the civil government is quite narrow as it's biblically defined by God who created it. And then the church, interestingly enough, is never commanded anywhere in the New Testament, nor do we have an example of the church directly teaching children. And so it's it's interesting to me that, you know, we have built almost everything that we think we know about education on something other than the Bible. So when we think about education, all these things come to our mind of school buildings and classrooms and school desks and recess and playgrounds and sports teams and band and prom and We don't find any of that in Scripture whatsoever. We find uh, parents being commanded by God to teach and instruct their children. And so everything we think we know about education, we've received from some outside source besides the Bible. And so I would say that much of what we think as Christians education is supposed to look like has been culturally informed by our own experience, our own upbringing, uh, as opposed to being informed by Scripture. Now, what makes Christian education Christian? I think one of the things that makes Christian education Christian is that it acknowledges the source of all the information that we are studying. So, for example, when you're studying mathematics uh, or science, physics, uh, music theory, whatever the topic may be, you really only have two 
competing narratives that are being presented. The one is that all of those intricate and highly detailed uh, academic studies are originated from a big bang, a cosmic accident that happened 14 billion years ago when all of the matter and energy in the universe was compressed into a little dot the size of a period on a page, and it exploded. And we got these highly intricate systems like our DNA, the DNA helix, the uh, laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity, the laws of mathematics, the laws of logic. Uh, again, all these things came about from an explosion that happened uh, for no reason, and then just time plus matter plus chance. That's one narrative, and that really is the meta-narrative, the overstory of government education. It gets pounded into your child's brain for 10,800 hours between kindergarten and 12th grade. Or you have another narrative, which is what Colossians 1 says, that it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that God made everything, the visible things, that's the physical world, and the invisible things, that's the metaphysical world, that everything was made through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us nothing was made that was not made through the Word. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So a Christian education would be one that acknowledges God in all of our ways, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, and also one that begins with faith, because Hebrews 6 tells us without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him has to acknowledge that, number one, He exists, and number two, that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So As we study out the laws of the universe, we're basically thinking God's thoughts after him, as uh, Blaise Pascal said. We're learning how to become, um, how to study the nature and and character of God as he's revealed it through general revelation. So Christian education acknowledges the Lord Jesus Christ as being the author of everything that is, as opposed to random chance processes. So given the fact that we live in a culture where compulsory education is required, we do have some options that parents have available to them. What do you suggest are the best models for passing along a a biblical worldview to a generation of children put in the charge of their parents? Well, obviously, the parents are supposed to be as involved as they possibly can be. And the reason is because Jesus said that when a student is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. So education is not just this process of downloading information, facts, and data, but it's actually the passing on of beliefs and values and character, and that's something that parents need to be very involved Mm -hmm. in. They can't just expect someone else to do their job for them. They need to be as involved as they possibly can, uh, but then they also need to be very, very careful about who they delegate that uh, supplementary help and resource to. And so, uh, again, I think those people should be sharing their faith and that the education should definitely be uh, based in the lordship of Jesus Christ and the fear of the Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is the one who made uh, everything and it all reflects his character and his glory. Coming up, a Christian classic. I mean, it not only teaches us that there's, there's guilt and embarrassment and shame and all those things, but it also teaches us that grace does a good work in us. The Pilgrim's Progress, when the Christian outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. 
Whether you're a parent motivated by much of our conversation today, looking for good material to use at home with your children, or you're somewhere else on your journey with Christ, looking for material that will nourish you today and yet still be relevant in 50 years, we can all benefit from the journey of Christian and his pursuit of the celestial city. Dr. Jeffrey Stuyvesant is a Pittsburgh pastor and a professor at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He joined John Hall and Kathy Emmons to talk about Pilgrim's Progress on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. So, Jeff, give us the, the, the viewpoint of the Pilgrim's Progress. It's been several hundred years since its publication. Obviously, you love it. What's your connection? Yeah, I do love it. And I think it's one of those books that everybody loves because, I mean, we're prone to love stories. And this is the narrative of the Christian life. Um, has wonderful teaching moments in it. You know, there are, there are things in here that children can understand. You can explain characters like Bible and Obstinate, and you can tie that right to the Bible and talk to them about how bad company corrupts good character, those kinds of things. So it's just really it's an accessible book. I mean, lots of people think because it's old, it's been in print for 345 years or maybe a little more than that, that it's archaic and tough to understand. It's really not. And you have to be patient with it, but it's patient with you. So how would you classify it? Would you say this is a young adult book, a kid's book, a book for adults? Um, And think about, you know, how people read today. What age group could get into the story? Yeah, you know, again, I think that anyone could get into the story. There's a book called Dangerous Journey. It's published by the Banner of Truth, and it has pictures in it and little snippets of the dialogue from the story, and it's not modified in any way. And my kids have loved that book. Other kids I know have loved that book. So it's one of those things where they just get pulled in by the story. Some of the some of the obviously some of the pictures pull them in, but then there are books that have made it accessible. Crossway has an edition of Pilgrim's Progress that updates the language for kids. But I'll tell you what, I think I think a, a teenager, a young teenager, if again if they're patient and and uh, we're just willing to think about some of the imagery, could read this book with a lot of profit. Yeah. So can you give us a general synopsis of the story? Yeah, it's a, it's about Christian who is called out of the city of destruction, and he ends up crossing the river, which is death, and entering into the celestial city. And in between, he has all of these adventures, which are just part of the Christian life. He has different characters that he meets up with and walks with along the journey. And, uh, you know, he finds bad characters and bad places to be, and, and he journeys off the path a couple of times and has to learn some hard lessons. But it really is about the Christian life. In fact, uh, one theologian, a famous theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, once said that if more Christian people would read The Pilgrim's Progress, they would probably need less personal counseling. Not that personal counseling is bad, certainly not, but um, The Pilgrim's Progress is just that kind of book that teaches people how to walk the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I think I think it teaches that there are a lot of obstacles in the Christian walk and that it's a long walk, you know, as Peterson said, in this, you know, a long walk and a long obedience in the same direction. Um, so a book of wisdom. Yeah, it's a book of wisdom. And I think it's also a book that none of us who live now, it's one of those things, you know, when you go to a website to look at all of the phrases we know that Shakespeare originated and you think, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that that was from Shakespeare. I think a lot of things mm-hmm. we talk about in the Christian life, we oh, don't, really? re- we don't realize came from, 
from John Bunyan. Do you agree? Oh, I agree. And and I love what you said about that there's a relevance to the book that even though it's old, there's relevance. Can I can I give an example? Yeah, sure. sure. So one of my favorite stories is about Faithful. And I love Faithful because he's he struggles with sin, but he's he's not described by the sin. He's described as faithful. That's his name. And um, what's the sin that he struggles with or or had struggles with? It's it's sexual temptation. For instance, um, he meets up with Adam, and Adam wants to marry off his three daughters, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life to him. He gets mixed up with a woman called Wanton, obviously. The name says it all. And he even says, he says, I don't know if I wholly escaped her. So clearly Bunyan is painting for us a picture of a man who has struggled with sexual temptation. Moses catches up to him along the path after he leaves Adam and just really beats him with the law. Because the law can't save. It can only drive you into shame and embarrassment and and so on. But then he spies Christ and sees Christ and comes to saving faith in Christ. Now, that sets us up for this really great part. There are two valleys that every pilgrim must go through, the valley of humiliation. And right after that is the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of shadow of death has a narrow path. And on one side, there's a ditch. And on the other side, there's mire. And what is that mire? The mire is the moral mire into which David fell with Bathsheba. Now, if you go through these valleys and it's dark, like Christian did, it's a miserable time. But the interesting thing is when Christian asks faithful, how were the valleys for you? This is what he said. Now, catch this. He said, this is what faithful said. I had sunshine all the rest of the way. Through that and also through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, what does that mean? It means that when he goes by the mire into which David fell, by that time in his life, he had victory over the sexual temptation that he struggled with earlier in the past. So the book is really encouraging. I mean, it not only teaches us that there's there's guilt and embarrassment and shame and all those things, but it also teaches us that grace does a good work in us. That's an encouraging story. Sure is. Jeff, I have to tell you, I had a hard time getting through the whole book. And that's just how I felt. However, when my kids were little, we landed on an abridged edition, one of the ones you were talking about at the early part of our um, segment. And it was the one that we love is retold by Gary Schmidt, and it's illustrated by Barry Mosier. And we have read that so many times. And our kids grew up loving it. So I guess I'm bringing that up. So if listeners open Pilgrim's Progress and they think, whoa, like this is not for Mm -hmm. me, it doesn't mean the story isn't for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and there are there are helps out there. For instance, I I just taught a class at uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Um, and it was a weekend class. You know, we got together in the, on Friday evening and, and then on Saturday. And that's available for audit. If it, that, that's a, a hopefully a nice help. But there are books out there that will help you sort of get that leg up, um, recordings out there that will kind of expose you a little bit to, you know, what's happening. But then you're right. There are also those books that bring it up into our modern language. They illustrate it for kids. And, and the book is so popular the publishers are trying to do that sort of thing with this book because they want they want people to read it. Coming up. If you don't go to church in some sense, you're practically saying, I don't really want to be with you, Jesus. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata with Johnny and Friends. Did you know that more than 80 million Americans daily depend on AM radio 
for conversations, news, weather reports, and emergency information? Well, a new bill in Congress would ensure AM radio remains in cars. Because when cell and internet services are down, this free service could be your only access to vital communication. Visit DependOnAM.com to learn how to make your voice heard. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. We've seen a number of reports lately about the decline in church attendance in our nation. Gallup, Pew Research, and the like have given us the numbers about the nuns, yes, but also about those who say they believe but just don't go to church anymore. Author Ann Kennedy responds once again with John and Kathy. If people aren't going to church and they're not going to show up at church, then, I mean, you see this already. Of course, there are thousands of churches closing all over the country here. Uh, It it doesn't bode well, but it doesn't mean that Christianity is going to disappear. There will still be those believers who gather regardless if there's a building or not. I mean, it's a necessary thing to be there. And I'm just kind of curious. And, you know, there's pushback about that, that, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. It is a big deal because... A lot of other institutions sort of grow up and actually find their energy source within Christian communities. So that's already dissipated a lot. But the fewer churches there are around, the fewer other kinds of community gatherings are going to also take place. Because the church is different than every other institution. It's not purely organized by human people. So, that and that's one thing I think that we haven't really, as American Christians, accounted for that the church is not ours to shape and mold. It's actually a spiritual entity with power beyond us. And we take it lightly at our peril, which we're discovering right now. And I think the only way that people are going to discover that church is important is if they admit that there are spiritual forces beyond them that they can't control and that they need shelter, Mm -hmm. and they need other people, or they will not be okay, not just their mental health, but actually other kinds of spiritual beings will come into view who are more scary than just their own depression. Mm -hmm. Um, I've watched a growing spiritual world come in as the church has receded, Mm -hmm. and that world is scary and dark. And I think that they point out the many ways that Christians are going to have wonderful opportunities coming up. That's one place where the opportunity is already there, and Christians should keep their eyes open for it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, John and I were just talking before the show about a friend's church, which is just the church is falling apart, and I don't mean the building. And so my question is, if people are listening and they're like, I'm in a bad church, what would you tell them to do? I would say take a breath. If you can't go to church for a little bit, that's okay, but it can't be for very long. And the authors point this out. You don't have to go back to that church. You don't Mm -hmm. have to go back to a church like that. There are other kinds of churches. There are other theological worldviews, but you should go to church because Jesus marries himself to the church so closely that if you don't go to church, in some sense, you're practically saying, I don't really want to be with you, Jesus. And you don't want to say that to your Lord and Savior. He loves you so much. Go to church. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to mention it to a friend. Find this episode at ChristianOutlook.com. While you're there, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. 
For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pashan and Wilbert Flores, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.